Today, we look into why audiences fall in love with brash and confident characters. We talk about how to integrate magic systems into your fictional universe and why some characters are just more sharp tongued than others. That's all coming up next on Novel Discourse. Let's go. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Novel Discourse Podcast, where we discuss great stories and how they're told. My name is Sam. My co-host Andy is out this week, which I'm really bummed about because today we're talking about one of my favorite books that I've read probably over the last 10 years or so, and that's The Name of the Wind by Patrick Rothfuss. If you haven't read the novel, I would go ahead and tell you to, well, first of all, like and subscribe and give us a rating and all those housekeeping chores that we always ask you to do. But afterwards, I would actually go ahead and close out of this episode. And the reason is, this is a review on the writing of the novel, so it will be filled with spoilers by the very nature of, you know, us giving you a review. But we wouldn't want to ruin anything for you. So go listen to it on audiobook, go read it, and then come back and enjoy this episode with us. I would also tell you that if you haven't read this book before, A, you're doing yourself a disservice, but B, this is a long novel. This is a 660-plus page novel. It's a, it's a high fantasy. Not only that, but it's a it's an adult, or some would say an epic high fantasy, meaning it gets very into the weeds of the world, the characters that Patrick Rothfuss created, which is a beautiful one. So if you're not into high fantasy, if you're not into that genre or a book of that length, I, I would go ahead and warn you that it, maybe it's not for you. But for the rest of you who do like fantasy or are interested in writing fantasy, or maybe you just want to learn how Patrick Rothfuss, as a first-time writer, won a lot of awards from this book and then eventually went on to sell New York Times bestsellers from this series. You're going to learn a lot this episode, so stick around and we'll, we'll get into it. One of the things that's surprised me about Name of the Wind is I've noticed that in the writing community in particular, this novel has had just wildly polar opinions. You either think that this is one of the best books to ever come out over the past 20 years, especially in the fantasy genre, or you think this book is incredibly boring, way too slow, and has, at its worst, a problematic character. Obviously, this is a podcast where we talk about great writing, or hopefully great writing. So, you know, we will talk about some of the criticisms of this novel, where some of those criticisms are fair, where some of those are maybe a little bit misplaced. But in general, we're going to talk about what Patrick Rothfuss does right, because there is a reason that this book is widely recommended among writers, why this book is a top-selling book, why the sequel appeared as a number one New York Times bestseller, and that the third book, when it does come out, will all but certainly be a number one New York Times bestseller as well. Name of the Wind came out in 2007. Patrick Rothfuss had been working on this book. I think he said around 2002 is when he started. He was an undergrad student at University of Madison, Wisconsin, where he was a chemical engineer, or studying to become one, I guess I should say, and then went on to change his degree to English. And it's kind of interesting because when you read this book and you read the the way that he creates the magic, it absolutely makes sense that he studied chemical engineering because one of the beautiful things about this novel 
is its magic. Before we get too far down in talking about the magic, I do want to take a step back and talk about the way that this book is structured, because in order to understand the magic, you have to understand how the book is structured. And that's because you're going to follow one person's life, and it's through their life and their experiences that you learn about the magic and then the way that it relates to the setting and the world around them, which Patrick does a really good job of. You're going to follow this character named Cote, K-O-T-E. And if I'm mispronouncing that, I do simultaneously apologize, but then also warn you that I'm going to mispronounce probably a lot of names in this podcast. So just sit back and relax. But anyways, you're following Cote and he is living in this small rural town as an innkeeper. This traveler comes to town named Chronicler, and the Chronicler is attacked by this demon spider type creature. And when this happens, Coat then saves the Chronicler, which then tips off the Chronicler that Coat isn't actually this innkeeper, but rather he is named Coth. Kavoth is this sort of legendary character who is a part magician, part bard or magician, and then a part of swordsman who has a nickname of the king killer because both allegedly kill the king and he is he is a major reason as to why the world is currently at war with each other. Chronicler wants to know if any of his stories are true, so Kavoth agrees to sit down with the Chronicler and tell him his life story. He says it's going to take three days, and the first book is basically the first day of storytelling. That's why it's called Day One. It's structured a little bit like how the Princess Bride or Big Fish is structured in the sense that you have one person telling another person a story and that's taking place in present day. And then when the person telling the story is talking, it jumps into a story that is taking place in the past. So in this instance, you have Kavoth telling the chronicler about his life. So it will show some scenes that are taking place in the end, in present day. And then as Kavos starts talking, it jumps to first person as Kavos explains his life. I did this, I did that. But where Princess Bride uses this as like a respite from, you know, when the story's getting a little bit too intense for a children's comedy and it wants to inject some humor into it, what Name of the Wind is doing is as Kavoth is telling his life story and maybe it's getting a little bit mundane, they'll jump back into the end and something will happen like they get attacked by another demon or another person comes in and it reminds you that, oh, the world is at war and Kavoth is, again, part of the reason why the world is at war. So that in times when maybe the drama starts to get a little bit too heavy or when there's a little bit of a slow moment in the story of Kavoth, you can be reminded as to the importance or the urgency of telling his story. So you're probably wondering, what does this structure have to do with the magic and, and why this plays into telling the magic? Well, as Kavoth starts telling his life story to the Chronicler, it, it starts with Kavoth as a child and then it moves into his adolescence. And then it moves into his enrollment into this university, which we'll get into a little bit later. But during this explanation of his childhood, you don't see a lot of magic. Kvothe doesn't know if magic really exists. He eventually meets uh, a mysterious traveler as part of his traveling trope with his, with his family named, I believe his name is Ben. And Ben knows a little bit of magic and he, he explains a little bit to Kvothe, but it's very... 
mysterious and difficult for him to grasp. So much so that in Kavos' early childhood, when he needs that magic, he, he can't figure out how to conjure it. And when, you know, people at the saloon or the tavern talk about magic, they're swiftly shut down, right? Either by authorities or by, you know, people making fun of them. But why doesn't he know about magic? I mean, if magic exists and it works, why aren't people talking about it? Why aren't people performing it? Why aren't people using it to better their lives? Well, in this world, you know, magic, the magic that Patrick Rothfuss created is really hard. It's really hard to learn. It's very complicated. A lot of it is math oriented. You have to be very precise. The, the, the magic that's not very precise is extremely difficult to learn. The one called naming in particular, as the title of the book suggests, Name of the Wind, is so hard, in fact, that people don't even know if it exists. It's just a rumor. And so that's kind of lesson one to learn from this story is, you know, when you make magic for your world, it's important to ask yourself, how would that magic affect my fictional universe, right? I mean, look at Pokemon. I mean, how weird would it be if there was a fictional world where these creatures exist that have magic powers and can interact well with humans and are intelligent, but nobody tried to tame them or nobody tried to befriend one and they were just roaming by themselves, right? I mean, magic has consequences. Worlds that have magic should adapt to that magic. I mean, think about Avatar The Last Airbender. I mean, people know bending in that world. Not everybody, but some people know bending. And it has led to entire countries building their entire economy around magic. So that's lesson one to learn is Rothfuss just does an incredible job of integrating his magic very thoughtfully into the world, which is not very much because magic is difficult. The second thing is hard magic versus soft magic. Now, hard magic is magic that follows extremely tight rules and regulations and if you don't do it properly, it doesn't work. And you know exactly what it is. You know, good examples of, of hard magic would be like Full Metal Alchemist, right? Soft magic is magic that is a little bit more difficult to comprehend. And you're not really sure exactly what the source of the magic is and how it works and who can do it. I mean, Gandalf is the pinnacle of soft magic. You just know that he's powerful and he can do some things and you're not really sure exactly what he can do or how he can do it. You know, somewhere in the middle is Harry Potter, right? Like, you're not really sure the exact source of the magic or everything that magicians can do, but there are some general principles, right? Well, this book has eight different kinds of magic, and some of them are soft magic, and some of them are hard magic. I, I, I don't remember all the names of the magics of this book, but as I said, there is some scientific-based magic, and then there's some more ethereal magics, like the fey magic and the naming where... It's a little bit more in your bones, whether you can do it or not. In particular, I think the magic that this book really excels at is of the hard magic variety. Our, our main character, Kavoth, goes to university at about, I want to say, 100 pages, maybe more into the novel. It's pretty deep in the novel. And he learns a few different kinds of magic. I don't have all of them in front of me, but I know sympathy was one of them. And the way this magic works, basically, is it creates a link between two objects and allows them to interact with one another. And it's very difficult. It's a very complex system. Have you ever read Mistborn by Brandon Sanderson, where 
he's able to use metal, right? That's a very hard magic system. And there's one of the kinds of metals that in this Mistborn novel where characters can be attracted and can be repelled from certain metals. Well, that's kind of how sympathy works. And if I understood it, I would write something similar. It's, it's very in-depth and they do not shy away from explaining the, the science behind it, right? And these characters will spend years at this university just making the most basic of spells, one of which made in the novel is Kavoth learning how to make these like sympathetic lamps that he's able to sell. And it takes him, you know, weeks to make a certain one. And that just shows you the difficulty of learning this magic. I want to take a minute and talk about Kavoth as a main character because one of the most common fighting points among authors and among people who read this book in general was whether or not he was a good character. And some people hated Kavoth. Other people thought he was amazing. And I want to take a stab at explaining both sides. Kavoth grows up in this traveling band of musicians and actors, including his parents. And they go from town to town, earning money, putting on a show. And you know, his parents and the rest of his band get slaughtered by the Chandran, which we'll get into a little bit later. But through that experience, he's able to learn very invaluable soft skills that he uses throughout the rest of the novel. And I can't imagine how fun of a character this was for Patrick Rothfuss to write. Because, you see, Kavoth is a smartass. He is smart aleck. He is incredibly witty and has, like, the best one-liners and the best dialogue, and he can banter with the best of them. If this was just a normal orphan, which is what he later becomes, obviously, that grew up and living on the streets, you know, it might make a little sense that he's spunky or that he takes risks, which is, again, part of some of the things that go into Cabot's character, but it's his existence in this traveling band of people that put on a show that make him such a good bullshitter, makes him so good when it comes to coming up with schemes, raising money, basically outwitting people, getting in the last word. And that plays into how he interacts with others. It plays into how he interacts with, you know, women, his friends, his enemies, right? And it gets him into a lot of trouble. He definitely could do himself a lot of favors by shutting up occasionally, but he also gets a lot of big wins by not shutting up and by being the center of attention, if you will, and being loud. People were really turned off by this and they found him to be very polarizing for anywhere from like annoying to brash to even like a womanizer. And my response to that is, look, he's a fictional character. He's, he's going to have flaws, right? I'm not saying you have to go out of your way to make a, your character a womanizer. That's not what I'm getting at. But what I am getting at is if your character has a flaw, that doesn't automatically make them a bad character, right? It just means that they're a complex character. It might also mean that they have a little bit of growing to do. I mean, isn't that part of a character's story arc, right? Is that they start as an imperfect character, even if some of those imperfections are slightly offensive to our sensitivities? Isn't part of their story arc to grow and to learn and to become better? So we're not giving these characters any breathing room. 
of course they're going to have slight flaws here and there. And keep in mind, this is a fictional universe that takes place in a time that mirrors something that looks a little bit like our medieval Europe, if you will. So it's no surprise that characters' morality or characters' morals are a little bit different than ours in the modern age. So I don't take points away from Kavoth for acting a little bit different than how you or my, I might act. This is a guy who saw his parents get killed at a young age, who had to grow up on the streets of a large town, like a trades port, for three years, scrounging for leftovers where he could find them, and, you know, where he goes to this university and is just constantly battered and beaten for resources. People expect very little out of him, and it's no surprise that he has a chip on his shoulder, right? I think it makes him a really complex character. I think it makes him a really fun character. You know, we talked a little bit about the hardships that Kavoth has to face in this novel, and I think this is probably my favorite aspect of the whole book is how Patrick Rothfuss has these different intertwining issues and hurdles for Kavoth to have to jump through. It's a little bit like a tipping scale where when one thing starts going okay in Kavoth's life, another thing starts spinning wildly out of control. So just off the top of my head, here's a few things that Kavoth has to worry about when he gets to the university, which again is kind of the main centerpiece of not only this novel, but the next novels is the university. So for one, parents get killed in front of him, which we, we addressed a little bit earlier by the Chandran, which is this group of, they're like phantoms, they're kind of warlocks, they might be human, they might be not. It's not quite clear to me, maybe somebody who's really big on the, on like the wiki fandom pages can correct me there, but they are probably the pure evil entities of this world, right? The Chandran. And they kill Kavos Paris right in front of him. And it becomes his life mission, basically, to find the Chandran. So that's kind of his overarching thing. But And so to do that, he goes to this university. Well, the university is expensive. And our hero has no money because he's an orphan that's living on the street. And so he's constantly at odds with the university because he has to pay his tuition. But to or in order to pay his tuition, he has to go do things for money, such as sell those sympathy lamps that I was referring to earlier, as well as he has to go play shows using his musical talents. And all of these things take time away from him that he might otherwise be using to studying, and making sure he's not falling behind in school and learning more about the Chandran, which is the reason he's there in the first place. But then he also has an enemy at the university, I believe named Ambrose, who is just the worst. He's a, uh, like a rich snobby kid, if you will. Kind of like a Draco Malfoy, but actually harmful, right? And then on top of all that, he has a love interest, who, that's a whole nother topic. She is a very toxic person, in my opinion. But Kavoth loves her. And their relationship is fascinating. We'll get into that in a second. But having all of these different issues that Kavoth has to tackle is such a powerful way to get the story to continue going. And that's something to be looking into with your writing is, you know, it's, it's not enough to have just one overarching problem. Give your, give your audiences multiple things to think about. You don't have to attack your protagonist with just one issue. You know, I was just reading... Um, 
the Da Vinci Code, which we'll we'll be having another episode about here shortly. But the Da Vinci Code is a good example of this. He's trying to figure out who is behind the murder of the 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 head of the museum, while he's also trying to run away from this French cop, while he's also trying to run away from this monk who tried to kill him, while he's also trying to clear his name. And so it's like similar issues, but they're all kind of intertwined. And there might be some issues that are more pressing in the moment, like I've got to get rid of this car or I've got to get out of this house or the, and there might be overarching issues. Like I've got to figure out why this, why I've been framed for this murder. In the instance of Name of the Wind, I think that's one of the best things that Rothfuss does is, is yes, this book is long, but it never leaves you being like, man, there's absolutely no problems for this character. You might feel like the overarching story is taking too long to progress, and that's fine because it he doesn't really learn much about the Chandran in this novel. He he learns about all, all these other things, about how magic works. He gains new enemies. He gains a love interest. But the center problem, yeah, that, that does not progress as fast as maybe you would like. But in lieu of that, Rothfuss does an incredible job of giving you other things to worry about, other things for the character to consider. So then it feels like every time he gets a win, he has something that comes and brings him right back to, down to reality. There's always a present danger looming, again, whether it's his money situation or it's his love interest or has his physical safety from Ambrose or the Chandran have come back or he fails a class or misses a class because he's dealing with all the other stuff that I just referred to. There's always something, and it's just something to think about in your own writing. Is what are other ways to impact your protagonist other than just you know the main overarching plot? What are other ways you can get them involved in their in the world around them and get them thinking about other things and other ways you can grow your character? How did everybody feel about Dina? I think that's how you say her name. Dina, Dina. I might be wrong. If I am, you can you can reach out to me at a novel underscore discourse on Twitter. Would love to hear from you guys. Don't roast me too hard, but would love to hear from you. So Dinna is, I mean, she's kind of the worst. I think she is a fascinating character in a way. She's, she's one of the only people in the whole novel that can match wits with our protagonist. Kavoth is so sharp tongue himself. Dinna kind of can carry her own. And I think that's really engaging for Kavoth. She's one of the only people in Kavot's life that's truly impressed with him and engages with him. She's able to see him for who he is and not his status as a poor orphan, basically, who doesn't really fit in at this university. But she's a lady of the night or an escort. At least I am almost 100% sure that's what she is. They're not very explicit about it. They definitely are implicit, but they're not like going out of their way to get very graphic with it. They just say that she's out and about with wealthy men, basically. And uh, that's got to be just the most brutal treatment for your protagonist. I mean, I know that writers love to be mean to their heroes, but I feel like making a protagonist who only has one person that he truly gets along with fantastically and sees him for who he is and then make him fall in love with him and then it turns out that she's a prostitute that's, you know, always around other men that are more powerful than him or like his enemies. That's just, that's mean. And it's just kind of one of those things that Rothfuss layers on to Kavo's story, just piles onto him. And, uh, you know, 
probably too mean for me, but it's not inherently a bad thing. I mean, it certainly makes the story interesting because, you know, every time you feel like he's taking a step in the right direction with his relationship with Dinah, it's like, you know, he sees her around town with another guy, right? Or she skipped town and you won't see Dinah for like 60 pages and then she comes back. You know, I can't help but be reminded of, if you ever seen Almost Famous, Kate Hudson's character is just this free spirit that all the guys can't help but be attracted to because she's like bubbly and can hold her own and she's witty and just has an infectious personality and has a great sense of humor. Dinah kind of represents all of those. Like I've heard people say that Kavoth is kind of a Mary Sue. Well, I think Dinah is a little bit of a Mary Sue. She's kind of a perfect representation of what wants, right? I mean, she's one of the only people that can hold wits with him. You know, Kavoth has basically spent his entire existence looking for belonging, right? Ever since his parents died. And Dinah is probably the closest thing that he'll ever find to that. And every time he feels like he's getting somewhere with her again, she runs away. And it's just the ultimate carrot on a stick, right? He just cannot seem to figure her out. And uh, it's probably more confusing to him than the magic system itself. But while we're on the topic of who is a Mary Sue and who is not, I heard a lot of people say that Kavoth is just this perfect character. And I got to say that I vehemently disagree with that. You know, we talked a little bit about his personality and him kind of being a jerk can be thoughtless, careless. I've heard womanizer. I've heard different other things. You know, I think that everything that Kavoth has earned in the story is, is just that it's earned. People say that everything comes easy to him. Well, a lot of things that come to him are him using his skills that have been given to him through his journey of life, again, which is his growing up in the troop where he learned to sing and to act and things. And he uses those abilities to the best of his knowledge to put himself in the best positions, right? Or to overcome certain adversaries. And, you know, if that's what it takes, so be it. Now, I know there are certain things that come to him a little bit easier than maybe other people. Like if he's really good at his sympathy, he's doing really well at his university when maybe he, he shouldn't. He's got, you know, he has some, and I'm, and I'm drawing a blank on the name of the, of the professor or the teacher, but he's gotten this really exclusive sort of apprenticeship in the university, but he's also got like half the, half the university staff wants him expelled, right? I mean, he gets in trouble in school for something pretty minor and gets like lashed, like 40 lashings in the courtyard, right? So I don't think he's been given anything too or easy. He might have a few things that come easy to him because he's a talented guy, but he has a ton of bad things happen to him, right? And we've already talked about some of them. I'm not hitting on every single thing, but if you've actually read the novel, it's like every time that he has a slight win or he gets like 10 bucks, and I don't know what the money's called, but every time he gets the smallest amount of money or he gets to stay in the university for a little longer or he has a win with dinner or... He learns maybe something about the Chandri or whatever. Something terrible happens to him and he's brought back down to earth or he's threatened that he might get expelled from school. So I don't think anything easy comes to him or I think most things don't come easy for him. Yeah, he's just a, he's a talented individual, but 
he's not a Mary Sue. To me, a Mary Sue would be a talented individual who makes no mistakes and who just doesn't, who's like the answer for everything, right? Kavoth is hardly the answer for anything. I mean, you can't complain that he's a Mary Sue and then also complain that the story's not going anywhere, right? Because kind of the definition of a Mary Sue is like, they're just able to just burn through the storyline and that no plot point is too strong for them. But in this instance, every every plot point is very difficult for Kavoth to overcome. So yeah, I, I push back very hard on the idea that he's that he's a Mary Sue. There's just not there's not enough evidence to support that. He's a talented individual, for sure. But, you know, we like talented protagonists, right? We want our protagonists to have a core competency. Take Luke from from Star Wars. Like, how lame would Star Wars be if Luke just sucked at using the force, right? I mean, what if Harry Potter, like, what if the, you know, the central character of Harry Potter was Ron, right? And you're just forced to follow the POV of a character that can't do any spells. Meanwhile, all of his friends are crushing it. That wouldn't be very entertaining. We like to see the person that has competency, right? I mean, we want them to use the competency wisely. We don't want them to just plow through situations, but we want them to have something they're really good at and use it intelligently. And that is like one of the best things about this book. Our character, Kavo, is incredible at talking his way out of situations or, you know, going to raise money through his, like I said, his music or his sympathy. And at the end of the novel, like sympathy is one of the, one of the best magics that he has. It's like one of the only magics he's really good at, at least in my recollection. And he uses it to slay the that's not a dragon. So I think it's called a Dracus or something. But essentially, it's like a dragon that's that's attacking a town. And Kavoth is able to use what magic he has, you know, to kill this creature that is significantly more powerful than he is. And that's kind of what you're looking for in a character, right? Is like intelligent use of their God-given abilities. So no, I I heavily push back that he's a that he's a Mary Sue. And so what can we learn from that though? Well, I think it's important to give your character a background. So no, don't just think about what's happening in your story, but think about where they came from and think about how they can use that to then create a core competency that they can use to overcome things instead of having things added to them. Now, this book is written extremely beautifully, not well, you know, not, you know, when I think of these, these books, I don't think of just the immaculate technical execution. I mean, he's good at that. That's, I'm not saying he's not good at that, but his prose is phenomenal. And there are books that try to write with the level of prose as, you know, Patrick Rothfuss, but that don't pull it off. Purple prose is, is one of those things where you can definitely learn to get better at it. It, it is, it's a little bit like obscenity or bad words, you know, the, the phrase, you know it when you see it. Well, that's kind of how purple prose is. You know it when you see it. And Patrick Rothfuss walks the line really well. There are definitely scenes in this book where the prose kind of gets in the way of me understanding what the hell's going on. But those are pretty limited. Most of the novel, you have a pretty good understanding of things happening. There's a few action scenes, particularly the fight with the Dracus at the end. When they really get into an action sequence, if that action involves use of magic, or scenes with the Chandran, where it's a little bit challenging to see, 
you know exactly what's going on. You don't get a sense of space sometimes. Like when you're using thick prose in an action scene, sometimes it, you can get lost in like, you know, who threw that stone or who, who shot that gun. There's a little bit of that going on here. But for the most part, just the prose is incredible, especially with the dialogue. And it makes sense because Kravoth is, again, his background is in storytelling. It's in these plays. And so it makes sense that the person telling the story has incredible dialogue, has a huge vocabulary, and that he's and that it comes out not only in his dialogue when he's telling the story, but also his descriptions within the story when he's when he's talking to Chronicler. I think this is one of the strengths of the book. It's one of those things where if you don't even love this genre, but you love really, I hate to use the term flowery description, but that's what it is. It's flowery, but it's really well done. Then I think you might like this book just for that reason alone. On the other hand, if you get a little bit annoyed that things aren't delivered to you, like straight up, if you like John Grisham books because you just want to get to the point, you want the plot to continue to develop, you want the page turner, you're going to hate this book. That's not really how this book operates. It's a slow burn. The, the overarching plot, as I've said, doesn't develop a whole lot, but a lot of intricacies and nuances are developed. The character develops. You are given a character that you can root for that has really fun competencies, as we've covered, as we've, as we've discussed. And the writing is just phenomenal in, in terms of the description, again, in the dialogue. And there's, there's one scene in particular that, that sticks out with me that I always think about with, with Kavoth and Dinna, where he has one really magical evening with her, where he thinks his relationship with her is going to progress. And they have this moment where he could have kissed her, but he ends up not. And it shows Kavoth walking back to the university at night by himself. And he's just replaying that moment in his head. And it's like three or four pages long of just his internal dialogue of like how the night went, which is so relatable, right? If you've ever been in a situation where you maybe could have, if something was slightly different, maybe you should have made the move on the girl, or maybe you should have asked her out, or maybe you should have, you know, asked for his number, or, you know, whatever it is. It's so relatable. And it's so well written. And there's one line, I think the chapter actually ends with the line, says something to the effect of, I should have said more, I should have said less. And I just love that. I love that. It's just such a perfect encapsulation of the internal struggle one has with that sort of situation. And, you know, Patrick took several years to write this book. He wrote it, you know, took him all through college, my understanding again. And, you know, it wasn't until I think, you know, 2007, he released it again. As I said, I think he started writing it in 2002, maybe earlier. And that's really evident because you can tell that he really put a lot of thoughts into the words and he didn't just throw down what could have worked. He really took his time to let this story marinate, to let the, the words be the perfect words and not just words that would do. And look, as somebody who writes myself, I write kind of young adult, middle grade style. And then when I don't write middle grade, young adult, I'm writing more mystery novels, right? So by, by the nature of my writing, I'm, I'm writing fast, choppy, like get to the point, get, get the plot churning type stories. I could never do this. Patrick is an incredibly gifted, just, it's almost like poetry. And, you know, it's not exclusive to this novel, 
there's there's novels that do this really well as well. But, you know, I just think in terms of doing this, you know, this this story with it with a really good character, especially a unique character, a unique magic system, you know, overall this is just it's a well written novel. It has beautiful prose. It has a character that by his very nature of being a risk taker and a loudmouth and brash is at minimum really entertaining to watch, right? I mean, how many how many books have you read? How many movies have you watched? How many TV episodes have you consumed where the character is just blah? You can't say that about this book. You might be able to say, man, I just really don't like that he didn't get to the Chandran or we didn't see them more or, you know, not enough questions were answered or it takes way too long for him to learn any magic. And that's fine. That's that's kind of a matter of opinion, and that's, but it's a valid opinion. I mean, when I read it, I had a little bit of those sort of reservations. I mean, you're reading a 660-page book. You, you want there to be payoff. Well, you know, the payoff is really nuanced. And, you know, as somebody who really enjoys the page turner, sometimes it's refreshing to read a novel that makes you really work for the payoff. But we've been promised the payoff, and it's in the form of, you know, what we discussed earlier about, we know that is going to become the king killer. And we know that something will happen later in his life that will lead to essentially a world war. And that's really exciting. I, I've, I have read the, the second novel, the, the Wise Man's Fear, which by the way, great name for a novel. And it's good. It's, it's very similar to this novel. It is a bit of a slow burn. So if you did not like this novel, you probably should not read the second novel. But if you liked the first novel, you should absolutely read the second. It it gets a little bit further into Kavos' life. It gets it gets a little bit further into Kavos' career at the university. He gets a little better at magic. He starts to interact more with the world outside of the university town. And it starts to get him on the tracks of being an influential figure, right? To where he can be in a position to cause, you know, the war that we know he causes. You know, we're all entitled to our opinions. You know, this is, after all, art. But, you know, when I, when I see, like, BookTube and other writers just dog this book, it makes no sense to me. I really think that comes from a place of jealousy. There are books that have come out in the last 20 years that have not been written very, <laughs> very airtight, right? From a technical perspective, they've got issues. They use the same words 3,000 times. They have weak characters. They're not fulfilling plot lines. You can go on and on. And I'm not going to name any of those books. This is a podcast about great writing and how to do it. I'm not going to get into dogging other authors because that's just not very helpful for one. For two, I don't want people dogging me. So, you know, we need to support each other. But I think that's kind of why I get a little bit irritated when a really good, well-written book comes out that, you know, should be a good representative for authors. Books like this can help kind of build readership and we should be supportive of books like this and not try to tear it down because we thought it was a little bit too slow for us. I mean, what, I mean, would you rather have a book like this come out or, you know, the book I just described that is somebody who clearly doesn't care about the craft that just rides the coattail of the latest pop culture trend and sells millions of copies? Like, which of those two would you rather have? So again, this is a really well-written book. If you like a good main character, and again, you don't have to, I could see where he annoys people, but he's a well-written main character. If you like characters that are brash, 
and make daring decisions and have really cool proficiencies and have a uniqueness to them. I understand where maybe you think he's a little annoying, but you certainly can't say that it's written poorly. You can't say that this world isn't immersive and you certainly can't say that the magic system is weak because it's really strong. I mean, I think we spent eight minutes on it on this pod. You probably spend two hours on it. Name of the Wind is a solid nine and a half out of 10. All the reasons we stated and then some. Well done, Patrick Rothfuss. Can't wait for book three. Thanks for listening to Novel Discourse. We really enjoy your support. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, follow us wherever you get your podcasts, leave a review. Every little bit counts. Recommend us to your friends. Again, we appreciate all you guys do for us. This has been Novel Discourse. I'm Sam. We'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you.